Does the name Stella Liebeck ring a bell? 1992, Albuquerque, New Mexico. She was 72 years old. Purchased a cup of McDonald's coffee. It was spilled. She suffered third degree burns. Went to the hospital. Sued McDonald's. And won an enormous amount of money. $2.9 million. You might remember some of the, the fuss that went on around that. Five years later, in 1997, specifically as a result of all the furor that, that was happening in the public sector, there's an organization by the name of Michigan Lawsuit Abuse Watch, acronym is MLAW. They began a contest to expose how frivolous, frivolous lawsuits, her lawsuit was considered frivolous by many, had led to a new cultural phenomenon called the Wacky Warning Label. You've seen some of these over the years. They've created a contest, and uh, they choose prize winners, and there are, there are cash prizes. Here are some of the labels that really exist. On a baby stroller, remove child before folding. This is on a fishing lure, a bright brass fishing lure with a treble hook, Harmful if swallowed. No kidding. On a child's scooter, there is a label that says, this product moves when used. Yeah. On a household iron, never iron your clothes while they are being worn. On an electric carpenter's drill, this product not intended for use as a dental tool. This may be my favorite. On a cardboard sunshield designed for your car's windshield, do not drive with sunshield in place. Oh my heavens, these are real. Can you imagine people being foolish enough to do any of those things that the labels warn against? I would think not unless there is the possibility that they can make some money. The manufacturers know that there is that possibility. They know that human nature is uh, probably willing to try just about anything for a large enough sum of money. And they fear that possibility. Fear that they could become the recipients of what is known as a frivolous lawsuit. Face the possibility of losing a significant amount of money. And isn't that what fear does? It confronts us with the possibility of losing something that is important to us, whether it be life, whether it be health, a relationship, security, respect, money, possessions, you name it. We tend to, in the face of fear, retreat and cling and hang on tightly to what is dear to us, unless you are John Brandick. Perhaps that name is familiar. 62-year-old British man some years ago, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and told that he had less than a year to live. So thinking that he only had that year to live, he decided to get the most out of it. Quit his job, he quit paying his mortgage, he used his savings to give gifts to friends and family, go on vacations, you know where this is going. He lived his life to the fullest at the end of that year, only to discover that his cancer was merely an inflammation of the pancreas. 
So instead of facing death, Brandick was now facing life, a life without money. And although he thinks the hospital should give him compensation for the misdiagnosis, you can read about this on Google, the hospital claims it would have been the same diagnosis from any other facility. They do, however, offer their sympathies. I love that story. Now, call me crazy or crazier than you would normally call me, but there is a lesson in that story for us. No doubt we can question the decisions that he made, but the fact is he was given a diagnosis of terminal. He was told that he would die within a year. And his response, I think, quite frankly, is fabulous. Instead of giving in to fear, he faced it. And he determined to live his life instead of retreating into safety mode, into worries and the the what-ifs, he stepped up and he determined to check out in a blaze of glory. You see, he believed it was going to happen. And he lived like he believed it, with a boldness. He was convinced of the truth And he acted on what he believed. And there's the lesson, friends. That's exactly the truth that we have been pushing for as we have moved through this sermon series. In the words of Beth Moore, life shouldn't be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly shouting, Wow, what a ride! Thank you, Lord! You're looking at me like I've got two heads. We live way too safely, my brothers and sisters. And for for several Sundays now, we've been asking that question, what if, just what if, in this country, the church, which is God's people, those who are redeemed, the children of God, what if the church really lived like it believes what it says it believes? What might that look like? If we say that we believe something of truly eternal significance, which is... that's what we claim, then, then it simply has to, has to impact our lives. The table that we come to this morning and, and celebrate, it, it stands here as a reminder of the greatest news that any of us could ever receive. The words of Jesus, this is my body given for you. When he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and it is poured out for you. Among all the religions of the world, there is no story like that. There is no story like the Christian story. The notion that a deity would sacrifice himself or herself for the welfare of the mortals, that's stupid. You don't find it in religious literature anywhere. And we remember that this morning at at the table. It's a reminder of, of the truth that is the bedrock of our faith. That God is love. And that he so loved the lost people of this broken world 
that he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for their sins, thus satisfying his own standard and demand for holiness. Let that rattle in your head a moment. That is an outrageous truth. Simply outrageous. And what Scripture teaches us, as we have seen the last few Sundays together, this is not just a little love. As we learn from Paul in his prayer for the Ephesians, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. Remember his prayer that you can know what is unknowable. It's a love that surpasses knowledge and our ability to really comprehend and understand It is amazing love. It is not love like we experience in the human realm. It's not like we love pizza or spend time in the mountains and and those kinds of things that we love. This is a love that the Scripture teaches comes from the heart of God, flows from His character. God is love, and He has set His affection upon us both in this life and for all eternity. And maybe the best news of all, and I hope you don't forget this, is love for us doesn't change. He's not going to wake up tomorrow and love you less than he loves you today. He's not going to second guess what did I see in him or her. We somehow have to continue the wrestling with the greatness of God's love Because if we don't, then we're really not going to to live out what we say we believe. So how many of you believe this, this ridiculous, absurd notion of God loving sinful, broken people enough to send His Son to die for your sins and to satisfy His holiness? How many of you believe that? How's that impacting your life? Don't answer that. That's why we come to this morning. If we really believe that God loves us the way that the Scripture teaches us that He does, then, it, then it, it is somehow going to work its way out of our lives. It's going to be demonstrated both individually as followers of Jesus and, and as the body of Christ represented here together at Applewood. And, and, and my hope is, is that this is sort of a a turning point in our series that the table standing here reminds us of where we've been and and pushes us to where we need to go. Sort of a, a launch into knowing God's love. Okay, what comes next? So we're going to stand and read another familiar text this morning. We're in Romans again. We've been there quite a bit. And this will be one that is familiar, I think, to many of us, the first two verses of, of Romans 12. Verses 1 and 2, you, probably many of you know them by heart. And I think it's, it's the text, if I can say it that way, it is the text, seems rather nervy of me, doesn't it, that defines the heart's response. When the heart really takes in the love of God and those truths that we've just reiterated that we've spent several weeks looking closely at, when it really works its way into that place of of change and decision-making in our lives. For the Hebrew, it was the heart. 
<laughs> for the modern American. It's the mind. And that's why I think this text is, is critically important to us. This is the text that tells us what the response to that understanding will look like. If a person says, well, I really do believe that God loves me with an everlasting love, and, and I understand that it, it truly is amazing, and it's undeserved, and, and that I'm secure. I'm, I'm secure in this life no matter what, and I'm certainly secure for all of eternity. I believe that, and I want to live my life in response to that, so that, so that somebody really does see in my life that I really believe what I say I believe, what's that going to look like? I think this text gives us the picture. And so, I think most of us know Romans 12, 1 and 2. What we might not recognize is the verses prior to it, the end of chapter 11, it's doxology. Paul has spent the better part of 11 chapters espousing the mystery and the wonder of God's grace. That God would pay the price for sinful people. That God would send His Son to die for broken, rebellious humanity. Paul uses some really strong language in those chapters to describe the human condition apart from Christ that God would do this not only for the Jews, which we would expect Him to do, but He's done it for those stinking Gentiles too. That's kind of the sense of Paul's amazement as he works his way toward this doxology. So let's stand and let's read together. Paul just kind of explodes with this. And then it'll lead us right into Romans chapter 12. Let's read together. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I love those words of doxology. You know, Paul has just spent himself writing this theological treatise about the mystery of God's grace. And, and it just seems to kind of explode off of the page. The mystery of who God is and how God works and what He does. Who can understand it? Who can figure Him out? Has anyone done something that God is repaying them for? No. You know, and, and Paul's sense is, don't try to figure this out. Determine to live your life as if it really is true. 
as if it really is the best news you have ever received. And the way that you're going to do that, you're going to start by presenting your bodies, which is always interesting to me because Paul uses the plural there, bodies as a living sacrifice, singular, says something I think about the collective worship of God's people when they're living their lives together in this way. Paul says this is true worship or reasonable worship, which is our response to God. Okay, so here's your neighbor question this morning. Turn to someone and ask them, why do you think Paul writes, offer your bodies, instead of, we would be more inclined to say, offer yourselves as living sacrifice. The word that he uses there in the Greek is the word soma. It means flesh. It means flesh. It's often used to describe a corpse. Flesh and bones. Paul is saying, offer your flesh and bones as a living sacrifice. Why do you think he's using that word specifically? See what your neighbor thinks. Just have some fun with it for a moment. Okay, we ready? What do you think? What's your neighbor think? Why do you, why do you think Paul is purposeful in using this word? Lee, what do you think? Okay. Tell us a little more. Faith without works is dead. Ah. It's... Okay, okay. Offering your body is different than offering your heart. It's doing it, not just thinking it. At least, yeah, I was going to say one or two down. <laughs> and what does that smart person think? Yeah, right on. It, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it is definitely a body thing. It's a, it's a physical thing. Bodies don't lie, really. I mean, if you want to know what is really important to me, What are you going to do? You're going to watch my life. You're going to listen. You're going to see if the things that I say and the the way that I live my life, if if they line up. I can talk about things that are important to me until the cows come home. I can keep talking until the cows have died. But if you, as you watch my life, don't see any evidence that what I'm saying is really lived out, then there's a disconnect there. You're not going to believe what I say. I think the reverse is also true. We can watch a person's life again and again. And we begin to see themes and and patterns that are consistent. And we begin to recognize what is important to them, though they may never speak about it. A body is very specific, and I think that's what Paul is driving at here. It is, it is the location of the soul. It is, it is that, that thing that carries what is really us. I have yet to see a soul without a body. I don't know about you, but that's just not been my experience. And if I really want to know the soul, then I watch and I listen to what I see happening. I think that's one of the reasons. I think there's another reason that that Paul uses it, and someone referenced it here. I think maybe it was in year three, some conversation there. Jesus had a body. This definitely picks up the mystery of the incarnation. 
Jesus was God in the flesh. God came in the flesh so that we could have a better understanding of the heart and the character of God better than ever before. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1. This is the clearest picture that humanity can have of God's character. And it is Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection of the body, his sacrifice that that we celebrate as the source of our forgiveness for sin, the source of our redemption for our broken relationship with God as our creator. But I, I think too that it's, it's more than that and perhaps that, that that's what Paul has in mind. And I don't think I'm stretching the credibility of, of the text here. We know that Jesus in his fully human body lived a life of trusting obedience to his Father. How often you see that in the Gospels. And it was in doing so that that he demonstrated for all those who watched his life the beauty of God, the beauty of life in the kingdom, as well as the life-giving values that were a part of the kingdom of God. And so when Paul exhorts the believers in Rome and the believers at Applewood to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, I can't help but think that he's also got Jesus' life in mind as he lived his life on a daily basis. I think that's why Paul's saying it's a living sacrifice. You know, it's, it's not a one and done thing. It'd be easier sometimes to just put ourselves in the altar and have somebody kill us. For pity's sake, you know, I'll, I'll try to get off of the thing and then I've got to get on again and off again and on again. It, it is the challenge of living a life that really illustrates the truth of what we believe. Think about where we've been. We've spent considerable time, to mention a moment ago, learning about the love of God, trying to wrap our minds around the amazing truth of who God is and how it is that he loves us, that his love is perfect because he is perfect, that God loves us the same from start to finish. And that when we are loved by God, we are secure in this life, no matter what the circumstances may look like, we are secure in this life, and we are secure for eternity. And it's out of his love, we've also learned that he sends his spirit into our lives as a certainty, as a guarantee of our status as his children. Remember, we read that in Ephesians. And the Spirit's role is to fill us to overflowing with the character, the fullness of God, so that what? Last week we talked about it. There is no room for fear in our lives. Fear is, in large part, the human condition. We respond to so many things out of fear. You remember we read from 1 John that perfect love drives out fear. We've read at the end of Romans chapter 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And that's where Paul just has that lengthy list. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If the enemy can get us to fear anything, then he has gotten us to doubt the love and the faithfulness of God. I know that's a very black and white statement. I don't believe that there is place for fear 
in the life of a believer. That doesn't mean that we don't experience fear. We do. It confronts us day in and day out. Life is uncertain and life is hard. What it does mean is that we don't surrender to fear. We're not going to live there. We consciously choose not to live there. We refuse to accept the lies of the enemy that God does not love us or that his plan for us is not good. We refuse to accept the lies of the enemy that he is not faithful and cannot be trusted. We choose. We choose to believe what is contrary to every sinful fiber that still resonates within us to the message that the enemy wants us to believe. And it's out of that commitment that we choose to become living sacrifices. That even though it is frightening, even though it is uncertain, when the Spirit calls us to something and we know that it is God calling, we are willing to put ourselves out there because we know that even if I die, I am secure. Are you with me? You don't look very excited about this. It's hard stuff, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm preaching to myself. I just, I fear stupid stuff all the time. But this life is not all that there is. It is a hiccup in comparison to the eternity that God has for us. And so we're going to camp in this text for the rest of, of this month together. And so... Having said that, let me just go back to three phrases that we read together in those first two verses of Romans. And I'm just going to take a couple of minutes as we lead into communion with this this morning. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. God's mercy, Paul says, is the motivator for giving ourselves to God as a living sacrifice on a daily basis. It's, it, it's the lens through which we see life. Rather than responding to the things that life presents us with fear, we put on the lens of God's mercy and we respond to those things with, how does God want to use me here and how can he bring glory to himself through me? sacrificing myself for him. You know, grace is sometimes distinguished among theologians and scholars. Grace is what God gives us. Mercy is sometimes referred to as what God does not give us. You know, Paul is thinking about the fact that he's just written 11 chapters on this amazing grace of God. It's that grace that we sang about this morning that finds us. It finds us wherever we are. You know, it's, it's there on the wedding day. It's there at birth. It's there at the grieving at the graveside. God's grace finds us. And Paul marvels that he didn't throw the talent on humanity. So let that truth shape your thoughts as you come to the table this morning. Not only does this table represent what God has given to you through His Son, but it represents what God has withheld from you as His enemy before Christ. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifice. 
The second phrase that jumps out, and we're going to come back to these in our, our next few Sundays together. Second phrase is, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Paul is assuming that the believers in Rome, because he's writing to believers, they are indwelled by the Spirit of God, they have the ability to to no longer think like those who have not been shown God's mercy. Understanding the pattern of the world is key. If you have an opportunity this week and want to read a little bit in 1 John chapter 2, read what John says about the pattern and the thinking of the world's mindset. In a couple of words, it would be this, self and more self. That's the pattern of the world. We weren't created for us. We were created for God. But how often do we live our lives as if it's about me? And if I can just rub that lamp the right way, then I'll get my three wishes from the great genie who lives in the sky. Or if I can just pull my rabbit's foot out and and hold it and rub it the right way. We were made for God. He does not exist for us. We exist for him. Conformity to the pattern of this world means that we continue, even as believers, to make this life about us. Paul says, wrong thinking. The pattern of the world is to make life about me. Jesus gave his life to free me from that thinking. It's what Gary was referring to over here in Romans chapter 8. We've been set free. Paul uses the language of obligation and slavery. You're no longer obligated to the sin nature. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. Jesus gave his life to free us from the pattern of the world's thinking so that we could understand and live out the truth that life is about God. And our greatest satisfaction as believers, our greatest satisfaction is to live in intimate relationship with him on the throne. Which really leads to the third statement that I love in this text, Then, Paul says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is one of those classic if-then statements. Sometimes we make God's will a mystery, which frankly I don't think God's will is a mystery in terms of what he wants from us in our lives. He wants us to surrender ourselves to him. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. The language there is you'll you'll be able to assess and understand and give your blessing to what's going on in your life at present if we're not willing to live as sacrifices for the sake of Christ, then we're going to always wonder why our lives as followers of Christ, why our life is not more satisfying and, and not more fulfilling. And even as I say that, it, I, I, I feel this sense of, of shallowness in my life because I've said to you before that there's so many of you that have, have dealt with such far greater pain than I have ever experienced. Some of you are just living under impossible kinds of circumstances right now. Take the reality of where you're at and continue to verbally offer yourself daily as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Gather those around you who believe that and will affirm that and support you in that. 
and begin to trust that God is going to bring a satisfaction that can only come from surrender to Him. So friends, do some reading in Romans chapter 12. Camp in those first few verses, 2, 3, down to 4. And uh, that is where we're going to go. That's going to be the shape of the last half of this journey of, of imagining Imagining what the life of the church could look like. Imagine what our lives could look like if we really were presenting ourselves as the living sacrifices that he has called.